It's also introducing fast-track assessment of new testing methods to find the best one. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks advance on economic optimism. European stocks rise on a second day as German confidence rebounds and Abe calls for a snap election and he delays tax increases to tackle recession. China's benchmark money market rate has dropped to a three-week low as a decline in housing prices adds to speculation that the central bank will keep funding costs low to support the economy. We'll discuss all of that on this morning on Money for Nothing with Natixis economist Luca Silipo and guest host Stuart Aldcroft of City Trust. Then Neil Ashdown of IHS Global joins us to make sense of the various free trade agreements and proposals in the Asia-Pacific. And finally, Hal Scott Davis of Deloitte Touche Tomahatsu joins us to discuss the tax breaks for stocks purchased through the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita. Uh, again, a full plate of uh, various things to discuss this morning. Well, lots of exciting financial news. <laughs> okay. Keep Let's... you busy today. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll have nonetheless, right? Mm, exactly. Okay, so we'll look at today's top stories. The Dow and the S&P 500 both closed at record highs, lifted by further gains in healthcare shares and solid economic data from the US and Germany. The Dow closed 40 points higher at 17,687, while the S&P rose high a percent to 2051 its third straight record the nasdaq gained 0.7 of a percent to end at 4702 investors were cheered by solid us home builder data and by an unexpected rise in german confidence Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has called for a snap election as he seeks to push back a scheduled tax increase arguing that recovery is the only path available to the country Delaying the tax by 18 months was a grave, grave decision, Mr. Abe said, but it would be justified if Japan were to make a complete exit from the deflation that it has experienced for much of the past 15 years. Forbes chairman and editor-in-chief Steve Forbes said that the only way to avoid a stagnant economy is to cut taxes. They've got to go for big tax cuts. As you know, they're doubling the national sales tax. Thankfully, he's back, backing off of that. They have a huge payroll tax, 30%, scheduled to go up to 37%. The highest corporate tax rate in the world next to that of the United States. High personal income tax rates. They're overtaxed. Slash the taxes and stop their version of quantitative easing. Fix the end of the dollar, and you'll see Japan come back very quickly. So is this proof that Abenomics cannot get the job done alone? Here's what Mohammed El Aryan says. No, it's not proof because Abenomics hadn't been fully implemented. We were waiting for the third arrow, and that hasn't come yet. But what it is proof is that when you are in a multi-decade malaise, the private sector doesn't trust you as much as you think they, they should when you're a government. So the minute they think you're going to raise taxes, they immediately raise their savings and then the economy goes down. Yeah, I think that number yesterday, the negative 1.6, was a horrible number. Um, now, Japan is moving quite quickly, so today we got news not only that they're going to postpone the consumption tax, but we actually have a date for an election. So there's going to be an attempt to revamp the economics approach So that's good news. But the message to the rest of the world is don't get stuck in this general malaise because it's very difficult to get out of. And that's particularly important for Europe. 
And so what about Europe? Elerian says that Europe needs to move simultaneously on demand and supply side measures. So on the supply side, it's about structural reform. On the demand side, it's about a better fiscal policy and do that simultaneously and not leave the ECB as the only game in town. If they leave the ECB as the only game in town, they're actually taking more risks down the road. So the question is then, are we at the point yet where global slowing is sapping the U.S. recovery? El Arian says not yet, but maybe we have to be careful. Actually, there's two divergences. Okay, there's a multi-speed world where the U.S. continues to heal and others are slowing, right? It's, um, and it's not just Japan. Europe has slowed. Germans' numbers weren't very encouraging. And the developing world has slowed. So that's the first divergence. The second divergence, which is important for markets, is monetary policy. Bank of Japan, ECB will press hard on the accelerator while the Fed will continue to ease off the accelerator. And I don't know whether the currency market, which is the only shock absorber, can do it all. So the big question for markets is, will the currency market accommodate fully or will something else have to happen? And what is it that could happen? What can we expect from the markets? So I think we should expect renewed volatility down the road. I think we're going to see volatility come from the foreign exchange market to the equity market. That's the first issue. Second, I think differentiation is going to be very important. Third, risk management will not be able to rely only on diversification. Because guess what? Correlations are breaking down. Look what happened today again between commodities and equities. Mm -hmm. Classical correlations are breaking down again. It's an interesting set of opinions from El Arian. Stuart, could you please explain his last comment for our listeners? You know, the fact that correlation between commodities and equities are breaking down once again. Well, the thing is, commodities are actually falling in price now, which is quite a good thing, quite a positive thing. Ultimately, that will lead to uh, potentially a lower inflation rate for, for most people. Um, but commodities are also um, uh, through uh, their companies listed on stock exchanges, so that will have a perhaps a negative impact on some of the very big mining companies especially. Um, I think what he's trying to indicate, though, is that there is no longer the correlation that used to exist. And, and these correlations mean that uh, if you see one thing going up, something else either goes up or down as a consequence. And, and where um, a lot of investors have tended to rely on correlation to make their investment decision, that's not happening in the same way as it happened before. And, and he's pointing that out very adequately, I think. Mm, well, one thing that we uh, often see correlated uh, uh, to the U.S., I should say inversely correlated to the strength uh, of the U.S. dollar is gold. And with all of its income from selling oil, Russia appears to be diversifying its reserves by buying massive amounts of gold. But William Rind, who is the CEO of the World Gold Trust Services, says that uh, central banks that make their reserve actions public, of all of them, Russia has been the largest and most active gold accumulator you know, of late. But of course, the elephant in the room is China, which doesn't publish its gold purchasing figures. Now, we've been watching, uh, as I said, the resurgence of gold in the last six months. Uh, sorry, excuse me. I'm, I'm getting tongue-tied here. We've been ro- we have been watching the resurgence of the dollar. The, the dollar, not the gold. Not the gold. <laughs> the gold has been tanking. Yeah, this is, this is what I wanted to say, is the resurgence of the dollar cannot be good for gold. Um, Rind, of course, says that uh, gold, however, is in a good fundamental position. Well, I think the dollar is, in some respects, is less of a story about U.S. dollar strength and more of a story of foreign currency weakness. 
And what's happened is there have been, you know, is largely deflationary pressures as um, countries around the world that don't have the kind of growth that we're seeing here are exporting deflation. And that's having a, a stronger effect on the dollar. If you look at the, the gold market fundamentals, we think this is a metal that's returning to deficit. We saw last year a big amount of supply come onto the market, largely fueled by the ETFs. That cleared at a lower price, uh, largely bought by Asian consumers. And but, Indian. Yeah, yeah and on, yeah. on the back of what was the strongest demand, year of demand we've seen on record for gold. This year, um, we believe that we're still going to have a very strong year in terms of demand, and we'll probably come in um, the second highest on record in terms of demand. All right, let's bring in Luca Salipo. Uh, and he's an economist at Natixis for discussion. Good morning, Luca. Good morning. So, uh, Luca, what do you make of this? Do you think that gold is in a good fundamental position? Uh, we just uh, wrote a paper about gold possibly going in triple digits, so losing the 1,000 uh, mark um, uh, on its price. Uh, however, of course, uh, short-term volatility can still bring it uh, higher for for some time. Uh, we see this as a as a natural natural uh, you know natural run of a story of a well-known story of gold as. A, it's a protection against inflation. Uh, if there is no inflation anywhere, probably gold does not have uh, to be uh, so high or so expensive. So, I mean, running really a very, very basic model of uh, gold as an alternative to uh, to inflated assets, even assets that are uh, whose return is uh, is damaged by inflation, then of course you have uh, you have gold that should be. Uh, should be weaker. Luca, this is Stuart here. Um, as you, you're forecasting gold to fall now by about 20%, then, if you're talking about uh, uh, triple digit as opposed to the current, what, 1185 or, or, or thereabouts, that, that's pretty negative, isn't it? Um, um, but how much of that is reflected on the fact that the US dollar is getting stronger against the currencies that are buying gold so heavily? Well, as I said, I, I, I don't think that these, uh, these are sound correlations. I mean, you cannot really find a sound correlation between U.S. dollar and gold and, and the effect of central banks that are hurt by dollar uh, strength or, or are, uh, see their reserves increase, the value of the reserve increasing because of dollar strength, and they uh, invest the, uh, the, the gains they make on gold. So I, I really don't think this is a game that is at play in the fundamental uh, valuation of gold. Are, are we seeing gold miners still pumping out gold? Yes, we do. But uh, I mean, that's not that, that's really not the point. Uh, really, I mean, the gold is really a demand market, so it's, it's, it's supply has limited effect on on the gold market, and and demand comes from international. I mean, wide uh, ranging uh, set of countries, not because one central bank decides to, uh, to, to buy gold. And, and so you need a catalyzer, you need a fundamental 
thing that happens and for which you want to buy gold on a global scale. And this thing just not happen. And you see the contrary happening with the disinflation getting stronger across the board, across the world. And so, of course, this is negative for gold. Okay, let's uh, switch gear if we can to talk about China's home prices, which posted a second consecutive annual drop in October. New home prices fell 2.6% from the year ago period after dropping an annual 1.3% in September. And this is according to uh, Reuters calculations of data released by the National Bureau of Statistics. Now, on month, prices fell 0.8%, uh, which is their sixth straight fall, but the extent of the declines appear to be easing. Luca, I'd like to know sort of what you make of this. You know, I mean, this is, it's, you have to look at it within a general uh, situation of China uh, where, where demand is uh, weaker. Uh, demand is weaker because uh, China is trying to transition from uh, uh, industrial-based or investment-based country towards a consumption-based uh, economy, uh, which is, of course, a very difficult uh, feat to achieve. Uh, in the meantime, China planned to uh, uh, to, to fill the slack that this would uh, this this structural reform or structural change in the economy would uh, would entail by construction and by real estate. Now, the problem is that construction and real estate are uh, reacting badly or not as strong as China or Chinese government were, was expecting because there has been the, the thing started with an excess supply of, uh, of uh, especially res- residential units. Uh, so the market was already overextended when China uh, actually needed a push from, from, constru- from the construction sector. So what you see in real, in real estate prices across China, especially in large cities where a lot of pundits were basically saying, okay, the China prices will never go down, uh, is actually the, the effect of an excess supply that is uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, compensated or partly compensated by the uh, determination of the government to use the construction and real estate sector as a slack, uh, as, a, as, as something to fill the slack uh, the, that is being created in the economy. Look so it's a, it's a very complex market, and I don't think that we can just dismiss it saying that now we're entering in a phase of uh, falling prices because government intervention can still be very potent there. Mm. Uh, Luca, if you look at the Chinese domestic bank loans, they were just under 100% of GDP in 2008. But by August of this year, they had swelled to 139% of GDP. Uh, this is according to uh, economist data from JP Morgan in New York. And if you add in the non-banks um, loans, the figure rises to approximately 200% of GDP. Is this not dangerous? Well, it is, it is dangerous when this debt becomes external. If, it's, if it does not become external, as it, by and large it is not right now, then it is potentially financed by, by the state. Uh, so, of course, you cannot finance 240% of GDP without uh, hurting the economy. So probably the economy will be hurt, although the uh, financing required for all that debt out there let's say it's 10%, 15%, so let's say that you have to spend or you have to sacrifice 25% of GDP 
in uh, one year for uh, for something like this if things goes badly so i don't feel that if the domestic debt remains uh, uh, I mean, if, if the debt remain largely held by the domestic sector, I don't feel that this is a this is a risk anywhere where people who are negative on this uh, things look at Japan. They have three hundred and eighty percent of GDP of private of private and public debt, uh, but it is mostly financed domestically, and so it is not it is not such a problem. So right. unless there is a push by China to push bonds, Chinese bonds, outside uh, of China, then this is not a real problem. Okay, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Luca. That is Luca Silipo, and he's an economist at Netixis. The time is now 8.19 a.m. and there are a series of free trade agreements in the works uh, here in the Asia-Pacific region. You've got the TPP. Australia and China have announced a bilateral trade agreement, India and Australia, many of them. Uh, we're joined now by Neil Ashdown, an economist at IHS Global, to help us make sense of this. So good morning, Neil. Good morning. Neil, can you outline, uh, you know, which of these agreements, you know, perhaps have more substance uh, and which of them uh, may not just make it? That's a very good question. Um, I think in particular the Australia-China FDA has been seen as a big win. Uh, The Australians are very happy with it. Uh, They got a lot of the things that they were looking for in terms of uh, access to agricultural projects, uh, products rather, uh, and that's something they've been uh, pushing for for basically the 10 years they've been negotiating this. China will be, uh, I think, very pleased as well with the uh, fact that they've had their uh, investment threshold lifted, so they're now enjoying the same uh, access to uh, foreign investment without uh, approvals that uh, Japan, South Korea, uh, the US and New Zealand enjoy in Australia. So that, again, was a a big uh, issue that had potential to be a stumbling block and which was uh, dealt with through uh, the bilateral negotiations. But why are there so many trade negotiations going on? I mean, it, it gets confusing as to whether, uh, you know, the country, various countries want to actually include other countries or actually exclude them. I think it's important to note that a lot of these negotiations have been taking place for a long time. Uh, the fact that we've seen a, a spate of deals being announced or concluded at roughly the same time, I think probably has a lot to do with the number of high-level diplomatic events we've seen recently, uh, the G20, uh, China's hosting of APEC. It's always nice to be able to come back with a piece of paper that says that we've uh, concluded a free trade agreement. Uh, so I think that while there has been a, a rash at the moment of these agreements, I think that's more indicative of uh, long-term structural factors rather than anything uh, that's taken place, say, in the last year. Are these um, politically led? I mean, are they governments? You know, Tony Abbott in Australia is taking all the glory at the moment for having done this with China. But is that more from a political perspective or is it really good for the economy of Australia? I I think it's certainly going to be good for the economy of Australia. There are, of course, uh, domestic political factors that are always going to come into Mm. play here. I think if you look in uh, Japan and in Australia, we have uh, right of centre, more conservative, more uh, free trade, uh, prone governments, and they've uh, taken place here. I think there are also domestic political factors in places like South Korea. Certainly the parliamentary opposition in South Korea claimed that the uh, agreement with China was uh, rushed through so that they would be able to come back from the APEC summit with. And then ASEAN is trying to do a free trade agreement around the Asian region or APEC as well. So will any of these sort of um, cross with each other or will they all then eventually come together? You're going to end up in a situation where you have a, a network of bilateral free trade agreements and then over a 
uh, on top of that, you're going to have regional agreements. Mm-hmm. Now, some of those are competitive. I think this is the concern people have about the uh, the contrast between the TPP, the US-led uh, project, and China's recently announced uh, free trade zone for Asia and the Pacific. Uh, I think people see that as perhaps a, a geopolitical thing as much as a, an economic uh, uh, play. But ultimately, these things, uh, I think, will drive each other. And, and they are genuinely bringing better uh, or bigger benefits to each economy as a result. Is that the case? I mean, if you were a South Korean farmer or a Japanese rice farmer, I think you might disagree with that. I think you might think that uh, greater access to uh, agricultural markets in China is uh, problematic. I think what you also have to look at is uh, the benefits over time. Uh, The Australia-China Free Trade Agreement is seen as very good now. Uh, I think the Australia-South Korea Free Trade Agreement, just because of uh, where South Korean manufacturing is at the moment, has been seen as less immediately useful. But in the long run, uh, as the more you do to equalise access to markets, the more you do to allow competition to take free reign across uh, across sectors and across countries, ultimately that's going to bring some benefits. Neil, uh, there are some trade union heads in some of the Asian countries who appear to be against these deals. Why would that be? Whenever you uh, reduce protections on a particular sector or a particular industry, you're going to uh, run into opposition from people who are, uh, have a vested interest in preserving the status quo. Uh, we've been predicting at IHS that uh, free trade agreements, for instance, in South Korea are going to lead to increased protests by uh, farmers, rice farmers. That's something that always happens. It happened when the Chile FTA was uh, agreed. It happened when the US FTA was agreed. Uh, you're always going to have these kinds of things. And I suppose it's a matter for uh, politicians in these countries to work out a way to deal with their domestic constituencies. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Neil Ashdown, an economist at IHS Global. How are policies formulated? How should the government allocate its resources in the budget? Boost the economy. Meet housing needs. Care for the elderly. Or should we focus on education, health care, and the environment? Make your voice heard. Share your views on the Policy Address and Budget Consultation website at www.policyaddress.gov.hk or call our hotline 2810-3768. A quick look at the numbers before we move on to the next segment. The Nikkei is up four-tenths of a percent to 17,408. Australia's ASX is down three-tenths of a percent to 5,367. And Seoul's Kospi is up three-tenths of a percent to 1,973. Well, uh, Hong Kong and Shanghai stocks have both closed down in the last day. Uh, has enthusiasm for the Tax Connect program waned? Stuart, what do you think? Um, it's been interesting to watch it, actually. You know, so day one, we saw the northbound traffic um, massive. Uh, the, the whole quota was taken up before 2 p.m. And uh, southbound, well, there wasn't a great deal of enthusiasm. Yesterday, that enthusiasm waned, as you said, and uh, the northbound uh, quota was not completed by the end of the day and in, interestingly there was more redemption yesterday than there was purchase so so the net net position was um, not that great uh, that said um, clearly it's got to get started and that was what was this was all about um, and I think one of the big issues that was cleared up which was literally on the Friday beforehand was whether or not there would be a tax applicable mm, yeah. um, to any purchases and you know I think um, we have in studio here Hal Davis from Deloitte's who is a tax expert um, and I'd, I'd perhaps best to sort of introduce him and ask him if uh, you know having seen this announcement whether this will be a significant change and, and a benefit for China stocks. 
Well, Stuart, thanks for having me. The, the announcement by the Chinese authorities makes it clear that at least for the time being, A shares purchased through Stock Connect by individual and institutional investors around the world will not be subject to Chinese capital gains tax when they're sold. This is simple and crystal clear, which is not always the case in the tax world, as everyone knows. You're you're talking with an American accent, so you know about these things. (laughs) Well, I I think it was vitally important for the successful launch of Stock Connect to have this clarity, and the Chinese government took a very pragmatic approach to it. The amount of the tax on capital gains was how much? Uh, 10%. 10%. So, uh, so clearly that was a cut-off for, uh, for everybody. That's right. And this is with effect from 17th of November? That's right. So all purchases on uh, Monday, November 17th through Stock Connect and afterwards qualify for this exemption. So will all, benef- all investors benefit from this or will there be some that are excluded? Uh, all foreign investors, uh, mainland investors, but foreign investors in particular – whether they're individual or institutions, uh, who buy through Stock Connect will qualify for the exemption. And, and then there's been some clarity as far as the tax position is concerned for um, QFII and RQFII products as well, hasn't Well, there? that's more complex. Uh, so eight shares have been traded by QFIs and RQFIs for many years, but there's always, there have always been uncertainties about how China would tax those capital gains. So funds have had to consider these issues depending on their particular circumstances in setting up their tax reserves. Now, the Stock Connect announcements address some issues but leave others unresolved. So it's quite possible that the tax reserve positions will evolve as more clarity is provided about the tax issue. Yeah, and what I've understood is that there were a number of um, of, of these RQFI funds, for example, who were relying on uh, on the potential tax relief from capital gains of a double taxation agreement between Hong Kong and China. Do you think that's going to have to now get more clarity as we go forward? Well, that's right. And I I think uh, it's been a constant process of evaluating the signals from the Chinese tax authorities about the availability of tax treaties. So uh, that'll be a continuing process. Okay, thank you. And thank you for joining us this morning. That is Hal Scott Davis. He is an international tax expert at Deloitte Touche Tomahatsu. Uh, look at currencies. Uh, one euro currently buys you 1.25 US dollars. The US dollar is worth 117 yen. And the pound sterling will currently buy you 12 Hong Kong dollars and 11 cents. Brent crude oil, $78.47. And gold is currently at $1,193.90 per ounce. Stuart, uh, we're about to wrap up the show, so give us some words of wisdom and what we should be looking out for before we see you next time this week. Yeah, well, last week you, you asked me that same question. I said, watch out for Japan. I never expected that the government would call a snap general election. Um, this but- is why I say words of wisdom. You are the soothsayer, right? <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 no, I'm not. <laughs> but Japan is, is the one to watch, especially within the region at the moment. A lot of things going on there. Markets going to go very well, I think, but the currency may not. And, uh, and you know, we've seen uh, a stock market that's up well, n- nearly 90% over the last 12 months, so it's pretty good going. Um, but um, watch the currency, which isn't going so well. All right. Thank you so much for joining You're us welcome. this morning. As guest host, that is Stuart Aldcroft of City Trust. And this is Rinita Malhotra-Hora of Money for Nothing, closing up the show. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be slightly cooler with cloudy periods in the morning, mainly fine and 
and dry during the day with a maximum temperature of around 23 degrees. Currently, the temperature is 20 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 74%. And now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. The Federation of Students and Scholarism both say they intend to remain at the three protest sites in Admiralty, Causeway Bay and Mongkok until the bitter end. Public support for the pro-democracy campaign has been waning as the street blockades enter their eighth week. A core member of the Federation, Avon Leung, told RTHK this morning that the group was still fighting for the National People's Congress to withdraw its framework on Hong Kong's political reform. At this stage, we, we don't have any practical gain after the 50 days of occupation. So there's simply no reason for us to retreat that easily. I think concerning the goodwill part, of course, I, uh, I think the, the remedy should be uh, how you appeal to the majority, like with explanation of why the movement has been so long. I mean, we have been staying for so long on the streets. And I think explanation is better than like ending the movement directly. Police say they arrested four men aged between 18 and 24 for criminal damage and assaulting officers after a small group of pro-democracy protesters broke into the Legislative Council building early this morning. It's the first time protesters have broken into a key public building. Three male officers sustained injuries and were sent to hospital. Meanwhile, the Legislative Council has rescheduled its meeting today as well as that of a public works subcommittee. The Human Rights Committee of the United Nations General Assembly has approved a resolution urging the Security Council to refer North Korea's harsh human rights situation to the International Criminal Court. A UN Commission of Inquiry report early this year declared that North Korea's human rights situation exceeds all others in duration, intensity and horror. The chairman of the inquiry, Justice Michael Kirby, said it was comparable to a modern-day holocaust. When I sat 